We're going to wrap up a couple things from last time, and then we'll move forward. You should have uh, a new sheet. Uh, that one that says the introit at the top. We're still going to use the old sheet, which had uh, two columns uh, back and forth. <laughs> We've been looking at the divine service, uh, Psalm 24, at the beginning. Uh, there was the... There was the invocation, and then we started looking at the confession of sins. Uh, there's a couple of versicles. Well, there is the invitation, the beloved in the Lord asking us to draw near to God, and we can because we are his baptized uh, children. Uh, we come asking him forgiveness, and he's promised that. Our help is in the one who made heaven and earth, and the promise. That is found. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So, with those scripture verses, we are enheartened to move forward with the confession. Uh, there is the confession itself, and then the absolution that follows after, uh, with uh, spoken by the pastor, and that kind of concludes the preparatory part of the service. On your white sheets that we passed out last time that had the two columns, uh, I want you to go to the second page. Prior to the Reformation, prior to the Reformation, here is what is going on with the divine uh, service or what we would call the Mass. Uh, it was done in Latin. Uh, it was done by the priest. Many of the people didn't know uh, Latin or didn't you know, understand what, what was going on with that. Um, there are two parts. One, as I put over here, uh, there was prescriptions for the priest who's getting ready to celebrate the Mass and this is what he was supposed to do in the sacristy. Uh, he began with an invocation. Uh, he used Psalm 43. I will go to the altar of God, to God by exceeding joy. There was a confidior, a confession of sins. Uh, and with that, uh, there was also an enumeration of the many saints that they asked for mercy. Uh, there was a certain form of absolution that went with it. Some versicles, uh, a couple of prayers, a prayer for purity, uh, a, uh, a prayer for forgiveness, uh, as it related to the saints' relics that were uh, in the altar. Uh, this was prior to the service. The people didn't do this. They didn't see it. Uh, but the priest did, and as I said, in the sacristy itself. Prior to the Reformation, uh, there is something called the prones. The prones. It was a brief vernacular office. In other words, stuck right in the middle of the Latin Mass was, in, in the language of the people, German, Italian, where, wherever you were, um, from about the 8th century, it followed the sermon. So, uh, uh, or, you know, my 
there wasn't a sermon, just kind of put it together. There were biddings to pray, called the biddings of the bees, uh, in which they prayed for uh, the kings, the queens, those in positions. Uh, there was a confession and absolution that was often uh, done. There was the creed, the Lord's Prayer, made of the Ten Commandments. These things were not uh, the exact same every every Sunday, but it was kind of left to the priest's discretion. And so you can kind of see where, uh, as the service was in Latin, so um, they started having, kind of right about the time of the sermon, a, a little teaching section. It would say, all right, maybe you don't know the Latin, you don't know this, but let's teach you a little bit. From about the 12th century on, uh, these parts had gotten a little more uh, firm. Uh, there was a recitation of the creed, a confession, uh, an absolution of sorts, Lord's Prayer, and then this biddings to prayer uh, became kind of the prayer of the church. And so that was pretty well after the uh, sermon. What did we find? Well, between the, uh, after the Reformation and for the next uh, couple centuries, as, as the Reformation is using the principles of justification by grace through faith and applying them to the service, here's how they changed the Mass. What remained at the point after the sermon, that's where the general prayer, including the Lord's Prayer, and then an exhortation to those who are coming to Lord's Supper. And uh, that pretty well uh, was what was left. And it's kind of interesting. Before this, there wasn't a general prayer at all. But, but now there was, and that included the Lord's Prayer. And then... Although there were some for a while that would have a confession or something like that uh, after the sermon but before Lord's Supper, pretty well it all got moved to the beginning of the service and this invocation followed by the confession absolution as we see it in our service. So some of these things that were put after the sermon, some got put to the beginning, some were left there. This is what we see. There is, and I'm going to uh, uh, spare you, there's a lot of questions and arguments among theologians. Uh, did these things that happened at the beginning and here, did they come from the Roman priest's private ministrations and then go here? Or did it come from here that it went out? Historically, I don't know that we know. Um, but that's why you saw you know, uh, some some things uh, change just a little bit with the service with the service itself. I mentioned last time uh, that I was going to come back to the uh, confession absolution and tie some things up. If you go in the front part of your hymnal. To the foreword, it's on page five. This hymnal supplement pretty well follows the common service book, except in two spots. 
And so, uh, uh, going to the middle of this second paragraph, as it says here, uh, the common service is restored. In one regard, the heritage of the synodical conference has been preferred in that we have utilized the words of the Confession and Absolution first published in 1881 in the book Church Liturgy for Evangelical Lutheran Congregations, the Unaltered Augsburg Confession, which was produced by uh, Concordia Publishing House in 1881. As this form of confession and absolution is more in keeping with the teaching of the Unaltered Augsburg Confession and its apology, regarding the character of absolution, we have retained this language in preference to the Declaration of Grace given in the 1880 Common Service. So, I included for you, if you look at your two-column sheet from last time, the Common Service had a confession had a prayer that the pastor and the people asked the Lord, and then there was a declaration of grace, not technically an absolution, not an I absolve you, I forgive you your sins, but announcing that there is grace available. In Rather than using the first person singular, it uses the first person plural, the we, it is in an optative mood, which means we uh, may this happen to you. That's what uh, uh, that is. Um, this one over here is in the indicative mood. It simply states that this is the case. You are forgiven. I forgive you. Um, and it's operative. It works that by its speaking. So over here, what do we have? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, hath had mercy upon us, hath given His only Son to die for us, and for His sake forgiveth us all our sins. To them that believe on His name, He giveth power to become the sons of God, and hath promised them His Holy Spirit. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And here is the optative, the asking it. Grant this, Lord, unto us all. I mentioned last time that these two were included side by side in our Lutheran worship. You have one on one on the left, one on the right. Uh, this is kind of the declaration of grace. This is the absolution, which is spoken. I, as I call them, ordain, in the stand by the of right, I forgive you your sins. And so, uh, speaks that forth. What about these two, and why, when we got to this particular one, that they left this off. This is the one they chose to do, although the common service most of the time had this in it. Um, as it mentioned in the foreword, uh, the Augsburg Confession talks about how uh, we retain absolution, uh, that it should not be uh, removed or, or taken away. Um, first of all, concerning these two, and I'm going to say... Most of you probably have heard when you take a look at those two side by side in Lutheran worship and you go, okay, so it gives you two options. When do you make use of those options and why? 
One of the the right has there's there's no evidence of the office of the key is involved. Exactly. This mm-hmm. is I'm mm-hmm. I'm saved because I believe, and it sort of becomes more like it's all closer to what I'm doing for myself almost. Got it. The and the left. The right side is more like, well, you're just one of us. The left side is you are there as in your role as the pastor, the leader. Right. So this one references the pastoral office or called and ordained. I'm doing this in the stead and by the command. Yeah, this is my job. Over here. It's happening now. We're all just one happy bunch. And there's no surety on the right side. To them to believe in his name, you know, because I'm always like, I believe, help my unbelief. So how much do I have to believe? On the left side, my sins are forgiven and I have your your assurance from God that they are forgiven. On the right, it's like, well, yeah. Right, so we can see a definite distinction, Karen. I was just going to say it's happening on the left. Yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) Yep. This one is declaring that this grace is available for you to have that assurance. You have to say, yes, you know, I, I make myself available and I have received, but it doesn't. It just says it's available. Um, Karn and then Eric. Well, a couple options. One, if you didn't have a pastor present at a service, then you might, I mean, obviously you would choose the one on the right. Then you'd probably just be doing matins. Anyway, so I don't know if it's really... The other thing is, it seems like, well, just choose the one you're more comfortable with, and if you're really into objective justification, you use the one that's on the right. And if you're... Interesting. Um, interesting. You would bring that up. We, we'll get to that in a little bit. Eric, that's what I was going to say. The same kind of thing. Karen, I was just thinking of someplace the Lord's Supper is announced that Jesus said, and not we're not saying his words, but it says Jesus said the Lord's Supper. Um, um, yeah, there is a consecration. Yeah, it's a little different. I don't but know where that is. But um, so historically, I, uh, what I was going to say is, after seeing this stuff and, and going through some of this stuff uh, and the things that we did it at that time, uh, this was all <laughs> all the wishy-washy stuff that was coming out in the uh, late sixties. Um, it is it is interesting that prior to the Lutheran hymnal, the Lutheran hymnal, instead of having those kind of side by side, breaks out page five and page fifteen. Page five is the non-communion. Page fifteen is the communion. The communion one uses the absolution. The non-communion one uses the declaration of grace. But what's fascinating is that uh, up until that point, uh, you you didn't have the the absolution one. But the 1941 hymnal made sure it was in there. Um, So that's when it, it happened. There are some that would say, when we came to Lutheran worship, they put them side by side and put this back, which was kind of a return to before, um, I don't know. Well, I was just going to say, it used to be when you had a vicar or a 
seminary student come lead your service, that they would use that. They would do that, exactly. Um, there was also a sense in which, and I, I, um, I know of certain pastors that said, um, I'm not really comfortable with this, so I'm going to use this one. <coughs> so they didn't buy the office of the keys then, did they? Right. So why were they pastors? Um, <laughs> Considering the whole history of the LCMS that we've been talking about, it would definitely be more comfortable with what you're talking about, the pastors not being comfortable with the left side, but being comfortable with the right, that their view on ministry was screwed up from the beginning. So historically, this is uh, this has taken a lot of different twists, and, and just to kind of run through for you, um, with the at the time of the Reformation, we kept the absolution, the private absolution, where you come to the pastor, you confess your sins, the pastor, you know, privately, and 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 he forgives you your sins. Um, there was, as I mentioned, a general confession absolution. That was after the sermon in that and kind of got moved to the front part of the service. Both of those then being, and there are several places in which Martin Chemnitz and others have said, we have both of these available, both the general and the private. Um, we prefer the private, but we also have the general uh, for it in the end of the 17th century, 1650, 1699, uh, you have pietism raise its head. Pietism is the one where everything has to be inside, you have to feel it, it has to be emotional, you have to have a true Christianity. Um, pietism looked at this and said, uh, the pastor, how can he give out the forgiveness of sins because he can't look into your heart? And pietism is all concerned about how do you feel in your heart and, and, and this great spiritual struggles inside and, 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 and all. And pietism said, yeah, we, we don't want that. Um, we don't mind uh, having discussions with the pastor. And so rather than Saturday night vespers being an instance where you come for private absolution, you came to talk about your Christian life. Pietism didn't like this. The next phase, you might remember the reaction to pietism was rationalism. Rationalism said, if I can't figure it out in my brain, remember, rationalism completely rejected this. By the time we get then to the 18th century and uh, with, with America and, and 19th, what do you have? This declaration grace was left because pietism and rationalism had worked its, its wonders in America. Uh, pretty well, no one practiced private confession absolution. Well, it's in the Book of Concord. Yes, it is. Two things. One, um, if you wanted to practice private confession and absolution from 1941 on, can you turn in this book to the order for private confession? There wasn't one. There wasn't an order. We've got one in LW. 
but there wasn't one. Um, not at all. The next thing is, in ni- this was 1941. In 1943, they printed the Synodical Catechism. And the Synodical Catechism, they left off, they included the words of the Office of the Keys and the... Uh, Office of Keys and Confession Absolution. They included the six questions that were all there. But Luther also included a, a sample order of private confession in there. They left it out. So pretty well, it wasn't until Lutheran worship that, that you even began to see this. So it had kind of uh, it had gone away uh, pretty well, practice-wise. Um, Karin brought up objective justification. In response to pietism, which said you can't see into your heart, you can't trust the pastor when he says that because he doesn't know, objective justification tried to rescue this absolution. Uh, pietism wanted to get rid of it and complained, and objective justification said, oh yeah, you can say this to people because everybody's already objectively justified anyway. Which all of a sudden now, oh, well, instead of saying, you're actually getting something, they said, no, you're just actually not getting something, because everybody has this anyway. So that also kind of rolled up in, into the whole thing uh, concerning it. With this uh, hymnal, uh, we've gone back to this particular here. There's one other issue that comes up. And the other issue is there is a difference between private confession absolution and a general confession absolution. Normally with a private confession absolution, you have one person, you speak the word, you put your hand on their head, that, that's, you, you hear their confession, you pronounce it. In a general confession absolution, as we have in our service, everybody's sitting out there. The pastor gives out an absolution generally. There can be a couple of things that's a little bit, well, difficult about pronouncing absolution generally to everybody. The question is, is God's word efficacious? And when is the effect? Um, is effective? You know, is that the question? Is the question whether mm-hmm. does God's word actually work? Well, I, I, I don't think we deny the efficaciousness of it. Um, but... Well, the argument would be that some people out there aren't really sorry, but you've just declared their sins are forgiven. And so now they're, you're saying they're forgiven, but they don't really believe. I guess that's the... So the, the question is, is I, I, we've made a general confession... But I don't know. And let me just give you an example of what I would say. Let's say that there is someone who is, I don't know, they're living together apart from marriage. I've worked with them. Uh, They are unrepentant. Uh, I have excommunicated them, removed them uh, from the congregation. Uh, They return for service the next Sunday, you know, unrepentant, but saying, listen, I'm part of this congregation. I'm fine and I give out a general absolution, you kind of go, so are they forgiven? And, and you go, hmm, that, uh, um, 
becomes Brian. Well, I say those are all shades of gray. What if you just got an atheist sitting out there? Right. <laughs> right. He just absolutely doesn't believe anything you're saying. He doesn't believe in God so much, and you give out absolution. So did it, did it work on him or not? Correct. It has. If it is true that they do not believe and are not repentant when they're speaking the words, then it's, it has no. It does not have the effect of forgiveness. But we don't know this. We can't know no. this. God knows it. No, exactly. And if I know that someone is unrepentant, I should be using the locking key. And I should be speaking them the words that they need to hear. Now, yes, I hope that they're repentant. I hope that they're, you know, but, again, I have to go based upon the confession, and I don't have that other than what we've had in, in the service itself. Eric? In our LBC class, you keep talking about how everything else comes out of justification and faith, and if you mess that up, everything else gets messed up. Would it be the same thing here, then, where... Oh, of course, without faith, how could you be? How could you receive forgiveness? You have to have that justification faith first, right? To be right. Forgiven. Exactly. So I included in blue. It's not on your sheet because I didn't print it off in color, but on mine, this absolution includes not only an I by virtue of my office called her and a servant announced the grace of God in you know unto all of you. There is also something that's normally not in the private confession absolution, but for the general it is. Um, Unto all of you who heartily repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and sincerely and earnestly purpose by the assistance of God the Holy Ghost, henceforth to amend your sinful lives, those are the people that in the stead and by the command of Christ I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That... uh, um, provides then a proper understanding that that is what this is for, and I'm assuming these things uh, uh, go with it. Well, I think that part, the part in the the blueprint, that part is very important because not everybody in the congregation knows who, who is, well for lack of a better term, excommunicated, and who isn't? If somebody, if Pastor Henson has applied the locking key, if you will, to somebody in private confession, if if he knows that they are not repentant for whatever it is they're doing, and they come to the service, that, that excludes them by its very nature from the forgiveness of sins, if in fact they haven't repented, and we don't need to know that. See, that's our problem. We think we need to know all this stuff, but we don't. Well, you can't really know that. That's right. We can't and, really and, know. And yeah. And and I mean to to build upon that because I I, I just give the example of stuff, but but. But let's say, you know, that the person is sitting in the congregation and (coughs) taking this seriously says, yes, now I need to repent of my sins. And now they are repentant. And they 
believe that Christ has done it, and they now sincerely and earnestly wish to change their their life. Then, then at this point, they say, "Listen, I, I heard the forgiveness of sins, and 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 so they present themselves to the altar, you know, and they said, you know, last week, Pastor, you removed me from the congregation, but I now have come to repent of my sins and 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 all. Um, you told me I'm forgiven. Am I forgiven? Absolutely. Absolutely." Absolutely. It's efficacious. Um, you know, I may have to say to them, you know, well, I, may, uh, um, I need to talk to you a little bit. Great. Fabulous. You know, you may not be able to take communion yet because I don't have time to walk through, but I'm, I'm what? Yes, God's word works. Um, so this, this thing is, is not just formality, but we want to make, make sure. Tony? I know we use it a lot, but... <clears throat> Jesus didn't say a lot to the thief except today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, well, let's agree about, you know. Right. You made your confession. You're safe. Right. So, just to give you a little bit of an idea, you know, CFW author with Missouri Senate and starting, uh, when they began, he said, listen, if you're coming into, as a congregation into the Missouri, you're going to have to practice private confession absolution. He said, if you have general confession absolution, he said, you need to work to get rid of it. <laughs> but if you can't, at least you'll have both of them. Um, Wilhelm Lea, who was, you know, came over for Russian Union, whatever, he also said private confession is the way to go. If you have general confession, you ought to have a general confession, but absolution ought to be people coming forward one by one, um, as we do like on Ash Wednesday and, and uh, Good Friday, those, those things of all. Um, I don't necessarily completely agree that this needs to go away. Again, uh, I think I used the, uh, uh, what did I say? Oh, here, at the bottom of page two, you know, Martin Chemnitz in his Inchiridion does mention both a private and a general confession that was already being used, you know, right after Martin Luther. He includes a corporate confession and absolution in his church order for Brunswick uh, Wolfenbüttel, um, which is quite similar to ours. I don't think that it needs to go away, but they were adamant about it. Need, that other needs to be offered as well. So anyway, that's why we have, um, and that's what the, the last thing that I kind of wanted to tie up, uh, why this side was used in this in this hymnal, Mary? Before you leave the side by side on page one fifty two, is there a difference when it's uh, it's the distribution? Um, the left says what you say, and the right says, "Take, eat. This is the very body of Christ given for you." It says nothing about sins. Um, you want to say anything about that? Um, that's at the Lord's Supper distribution words. Uh huh. Um, no, I don't know that I have anything. That uh, it just, you know, there is to me that's a glaring thing to say. Take drink. This is the very blood of Christ shed for you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give. Maybe when we get to Lord's Supper, we can okay. bring it up. Thank you.
The next section, uh, if you go ahead in your hymnal, page uh, number nine has the introit uh, following uh, the absolution, the introit. The antiphon and psalm are chanted or said by the pastor at the altar. The glory of is chanted or said by the congregation. The pastor shall repeat the antiphon after the glory of Patri. Alternately, the introit may be chanted by the choir. Uh, the ca- uh, pastor continues to face the altar until the salutation. They do have listed in here. Now, we have been using, uh, if you want to look at, we have been using page 110 in this particular book, but I uh, have it in a, a handout which is, you know, be this morning will be this blue one, uh, which it says the 13th Sunday after Trinity. It has the uh, introit and then collect and, and, and those. This is what I've been printing off for you so that you have those. Uh, this here, as it has a possibility of, you can do the antiphon and the psalm, you can sing this Gloria Patri, and then go back to uh, the antiphon. Some congregations have uh, have done that. Let's take a look, though, at the uh, 13th Sunday after Trinity. That's the one for for this particular Sunday. So what do we have? Well, there's an introit. Uh, A-N-T means an antiphon. The word phon, P-H-O-N, phonos, is the word for voice. Anti is against, against the voice. What that means is, antiphon was, there were up in the chancel two choirs, one sat on one side, one sat on the other, and one voice against the other. They would sing one, then they would sing the other, and it would alternate back and forth. That's where you have the word antiphon. These four lines here uh, are the antiphon. Then there is the psalm, uh, happens to be these two lines. Then there is the Gloria Patri, which are these four. Then you go back up and do the uh, introit again. What about this uh, introit uh, that we have? Well, uh, this particular introit, almost, I must say not always, but almost always, they're taken from the Psalms. So, Psalm 74 happens to be the one that uh, today's Sunday introit is from. Psalm 74, verse 1. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Uh, that would be the psalm itself, Psalm, psalm 1. Going on down, though, if you take a look at verses 20 through 23... They don't use all, they use the first line of each one. This is where the antiphon comes from. Have respect to the covenant. And they skip, for the dark places of the earth are full of the humps of truth. Oh, do not let the oppressed return to shame. That's a point you need to him. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how foolish men approaches you today. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. These four lines serve as the antiphon. Then you sing verse 1 of Psalm 74, the Gloria Patri, and you come back, 
and you will uh, chant these. Uh, I think it's Pope Celeste, uh, fifth century or so, uh, thought that it would be very good for there to be a psalm, an entire psalm, chanted as the monks, the priests, whatever, were going over to church. So you wake them all up, and while you're going over, you start singing the psalm, and that is what you're going to do. That psalm, then, maybe would have been all of Psalm 74. Over time, you can see that parts of it are taken out, uh, and not the whole psalm is used. Typical fashion, just like Jesus on the cross, he quotes... Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's only the first verse of a psalm. But he's obviously including this in his uh, uh, referencing it, just as we might say, well, you know a mighty fortress is our God. I'm not just talking that. We're talking the hymn that we sing. So similarly, we have that. What about this morning? Well, this introit which includes parts of this, this antiphon part, and then the other, is intended, just like the collect, to set the theme for the service. So, what about this service? Um, Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel coming up for, uh, in just a few moments, is Luke chapter 10, verses 23 to 37. Uh, quick summary. Jesus says kings and priests long to hear about him. When Jesus shows up, a Bible scholar starts testing Jesus and says, what do I got to do? Jesus said, you got to keep the law. Um, this man said, love the Lord your God, love the neighbor as yourself. He said, yeah, you got to do that. Uh, the man wanted to justify himself. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and when he gets out again, he says, go and try to do it. The man can't do it. What's the theme for the service this morning? I guess that, it's our, that, our, that our works are not going to save us. Correct. So what does? Faith in Christ. Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross, our faith in that. Exactly. <coughs> and so when Jesus shows up and says, I'm here... You think you ought to test him, or you think you ought to believe and trust him? Believe, I'm going to go with the believe and trust him. I think I would go with that part, exactly. The epistle reading from Galatians 3 talks about a covenant. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. It goes on. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say in the seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, all right, so we got the law, that was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. So it continues to talk about the promise, it continues to talk about the covenant. That is the ways in which we are saved. When this antiphon starts off, and you sing it, Oh Lord, have respect to the... What are we asking God to do? Remember His Word. Remember His promise. The Gospel. Right? 
Don't let the oppressed arise. Plead your own cause. Don't forget, you know, there are enemies up against us. But we're asking you to remember your gospel, your promises, your covenant towards us. And Psalm 74, O oh God, why have you cast us off? For, why does it feel like you're always casting us off? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your and pasture? Why, why does it say forever so often? That's when the they, way the Psalms speak. Yes, and I was wondering, they have plenty of experience to know that it's not forever. Especially yes. when they pray to God and ask him to remember his promises. So, is it just expressing the angst of being human? Yes. Um, this is, this, you know, in the same kind of way you would pray to God and say, Lord, why do you keep having disasters come against me forever? Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. seems like it's one after another and it's not stopping. And so it's a poetic way of, you know, uh, um, I tell my wife I'm going to love her forever. Mm-hmm. I don't know, forever? You're going to try. <laughs> At least for this life. Um, yeah, I'm kind of worried about asking. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that you know. similar, similar kind of thing. We're right down the line. Well, we're forgetting to have respect to the covenant. That's mm-hmm. our, that's what that's talking about. Right. Right. Yeah, right. right. We ought to be returning to God's promises that He has made. The promises that came. The law was 430 years earlier. I was just thinking it's reminiscent of we deserve eternal forever death. Mm-hmm. Well, that and the fact that our old sinful nature is with us until we die, and in reality, from a human perspective, that's forever. That is forever. From now till forever, when I die, my mm-hmm. human nature is still going to be pestering me. God is eternal, no beginning and no end, but we forget often that we have a beginning but no end. We are immortal, and... The concept of forever is very hard for us to grasp, but it's very important to remember that without the grace of God, forever in darkness and hell is a very long time. So the Psalms frequently remind you that without Christ, it is forever. So the Psalm, you know, remember your congregation, remember your promise, remember whatever. And in that way, as I remember this, I know that God hasn't cast me off forever. Right. God doesn't forget. This is for us to remember and us to recall. You know, Luther, in a similar way, also uh, recommended at one point, he said, you know, instead of just those little verses of Psalm 74, we ought to just use the whole thing. Well, he was a, he was a monk. And, you know, he, they went through the Psalms every week. And he knew the Psalms, and he knew how that all went together. Um, nevertheless, Luther at times makes recommendations that as a theologian is, is probably pretty good. In practice, you know, um, I've, I've tried, in fact, I even tried this a couple of times where I was like, oh yeah, rather than just use a couple of verses, we're going to do the whole Psalm. You know, I, I did it on a Tuesday or Thursday when people came and, and did, um, it, it's, it's a pro. I mean, it fits the theme, but you get lost. You know, our liturgy has bing, bing, bing. You go to there, you go to here. After 25 verses of a psalm, I can't quite remember where I am. Oh, yeah, Kyrian comes after this. I mean, it just liturgically, you know, if we could all keep our minds in this and we had two and a half hours, this would be great. 
But the reality is, is that most of us don't. Um, and so there are sometimes that Luther recommends things, or he tried a couple things in his, and then, but but he always kind of went, you know, leave this for other people. I'm kind of the reformer, but I'm not the liturgical scholar that that comes to these. I was just thinking, Luther, I don't think slept too much either. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, think he wrote more than any person in history. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, on your sheet that you have for the introit. Um, the word intro, it uh, literally means he enters in Latin. That's why we call it an introit. Uh, we see things like First Corinthians or First Chronicles 16. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make His deeds, make known His deeds among the people. Sing to the people. Sing praises to Him. Talk of His wondrous works. Sing to the people all the earth, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Similar to David, and this was exactly at the time that the Ark of the Covenant was coming to Jerusalem, they sang psalms. Why? Because that's the way that you give thanks and you welcome the Lord. Uh, you sing praises to him, giving thanks, remembering his name. Um, yes, that's what we do as we go into the... Uh, into the... Sanctuary of God. There are, I mentioned at the bottom of this page, there's actually four psalmody chants. They vary every Sunday, but there was actually four psalmody chants that are included in the divine service. It was in, Some psalms were included in the introit, as you enter into God's house. Some were included in the gradual, in which you have it in between the epistle and the gospel reading. There were a psalm that was used during the offertory, similar to us singing hymns, uh, uh, or uh, the offertory that we use is Psalm 51, Create in Me. Uh, you, it could vary. They took that one and used it. There are communion psalms, and so uh, we've had a, a cantor kind of chant one of the psalms at the beginning, uh, especially while the organist is, is getting ready. There, uh, the psalmody was used in the services. Again, not the whole, but, you know, five, six, seven stanzas uh, that was included. Uh, I mentioned the introit, uh, having an antiphon, a psalm. Uh, Gloria Patri. The Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost is often called the lesser doxology. When you get to the Gloria and Excelsis, uh, glory be uh, God on high and the peace to his people on earth. That's considered the greater doxology. Um, so sometimes though we get confused. Or, oh, does the glory of Patrick go away or does the glory of Excelsis go away? Um, they're, they're different. Um, the text for these varies. It's proper. It goes with the theme of the day. Uh, the glory of Patrick remains except during Passion Tide, the last two weeks before Easter, and then even that goes away. It's quite customary to bow the head uh, when you hear the Gloria Patria or the name of Jesus uh, in it. This talks about how Pope Celestine decreed an entire psalm should be sung antiphonally. Um, the question becomes, in our service, uh, what would be kind of the best way to do this? Uh, if it was done by choirs, you kind of go, well, I guess we could have two choirs. Yeah, we have trouble getting one choir. Uh, um you know, so, but the choir really 
is not functioning as a pastor, they're functioning as the congregation. And so, to have the uh, pastor intone the antiphon, to go in, and then to have it sung from there on out, similar to what we are are doing. Uh, these psalms all are, as we see with Luke 24, pointing us to uh, Christ and, and what he has done for us. So, uh, that's the introit that's on uh, this sheet, or it was on page 110 in, in that one. Um, any questions about the introit? Yeah, and the thing is, I've been in choirs and I've been in, you know, the congregation. To me, uh, it's important as a member of the congregation that I actually do some of this stuff rather than going to sleep. Yes. (laughs) Participation. Yeah. We talk about active participation. Right. Um, The other way I can go to sleep. <laughs> right, right, and and there, are, you know, some parts, uh, um, you know, I, I I can't help you, you know, you can't preach the sermon with me, no, you know, that active. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to actively <laughs> listen. But there are other parts, as you say, to sing the hymns to do, um, and I would say, often the parts that the pastor is doing, you make them your own. So as the pastor goes from the nave, the place where the pews are. During the introit, he walks up to the altar. You too, you would say, in your mind, are thinking, yes, we're chanting these psalms, giving thanks to God, as we come before him. We've already declared our baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've already confessed our sins and received absolution. Now we come before him to give him praise and thanksgiving and to receive his, his gift. So you too, you might say, think about, oh, that... That is also, that's what I'm doing um, uh, when the pastor does it himself. All right, that gets us with the introit. I do include uh, some of the uh, praise and, and, and glory uh, psalms that are, or Bible passages that are included with it. Kyrie. The next section, uh, if you look on your in your hymnal, the Kyrie is on page ten. This shall be chanted, or it shall be said by the pastor and the congregation. The text is quite clear: "Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, or Lord have mercy uh, upon us." Lord have mercy upon us. It actually comes from the Greek, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Uh, that's where the word Kyrie comes from. What happens with the Kyrie? So, we've come before the Lord, chanting psalms, and now we've arrived at the altar. There are two, well, three things that are going to happen right away. There's going to be the Kyrie, there's going to be the glory in excelsis, and there's going to be the collect prayed for the day. This curie is the very first thing that we do when we arrive at the altar. What do we mean when we say, have mercy? 
it's really the most basic of all possible prayers. It is. It's a threefold prayer to, prayer to God to have mercy, and it's kind of it's kind of like the uh, it's kind of like the tax collector. The Lord have mercy. It's not doesn't present, you're not presenting anything special about yourself. You just you're throwing yourself at God's feet, and begging for the most simple of all things you can ask for. Yes. Yes. It's a form of confession, isn't it? Yeah. So is it time? And and, and and I guess this is something. That I think we need to look. You know, is it? Oh, we're just going back to confession again. No, it's 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 well, more basic. It doesn't deny that at all. It doesn't deny it. Um, and I think that's where we need to kind of hit. I think it's stating the fact. The Lord has had mercy on us. Okay. No. It reminds me of a private uh, confession and absolution where you confess the sins that you're specifically wanting to confess, but also those which you, you can't specifically think of. The prayers just, Lord, have mercy on me, because you know you're a sinner, but you don't know, you may not be able to remember a specific thing you want to confess. Okay. Okay. Well, it seems to me like it's you're, you, like you said, maybe you're not confessing, but you're recognizing again, but you're also knowing that you're it's faith to speak, knowing that you de- can have that mercy. You deserve that mercy in Christ, or however you, you know, you get that mercy. Tony Prosca? Yeah, I love the threefold. <laughs> to me, they say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. It's too quick. And it doesn't really express what I want to say. And when I was doing the three times on for each one, this was more for me personally was more satisfying. Mm-hmm. Car? Um, maybe just getting a what's coming up is we're going to be receiving a whole lot of gifts through this service, the word and sacrament, and that the Lord would have mercy upon us throughout this what's to come in our reception of the gifts. Yeah. And isn't it also asking for help? Um, this is what I am thinking all through the day when I'm not coping well, is having his mercy. Brian? You're acknowledging the Trinity, right? Say that again? You're acknowledging the Trinity. With the threefold. With the three, threefold, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You're also admitting that you're not worthy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that, that's at the base. And I think when you say a general, you know, Mark said, you know, th- this is, you know, which which I begin to kind of go, well, now wait a minute, you know, I I I, I remembered I was baptized, I confessed, I got absolution. Um, but those are all things God gave me. So did did those not work? Um, I'm approaching the altar to receive. The service of the word, and I'm not worthy to come to your altar. No matter, no matter if I've confessed two seconds ago, I'm still not worthy. I'm still not. Right. It's not a matter that that um, uh, it's it's not a repetition of the confession again, but it does acknowledge that despite me getting forgiveness, I still stand under the saint and sinner kind of aspect, and I am still I'm crying out for help. I know that the help that I get, even as a baptized child of God, I don't deserve. 
you know, so I'm coming for mercy. As we go through, and next time I'm going to go through some of these, there are some, without a doubt, uh, Psalm 51, Psalm 41, there are those that talk about the mercy is the forgiveness of sins itself that we are asking for. But more often than not, uh, it is not explicitly asking for forgiveness, but some other help. But that help, I've got to be forgiven. Um, so I'm getting this, and, and I would say at this point, we're acknowledging, yes, our unworthiness, but we're still here. And we're asking God to, to help us, and that, that general unworthiness help that we're asking for uh, may vary from individual to individual as, as we come. Um, the mercy that I asked the Lord to help me with today may be different from next Sunday. But I recognize that I still need to come asking for his mercy. <coughs> We're out of time. I'll come back. We'll hit some of those uh, Bible passages next time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have saved us and you have invited us to come before your presence as we learn about your service to us and our thanksgiving in return. I ask that you would enlighten our, our hearts and minds uh, to receive your gospel covenant and then to uh, uh, speak back to you uh, that uh, thanksgiving which you uh, for the gifts which you have given us and we don't deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.